You're listening to the Go Adventure Mom podcast. This is episode 30, brought to you by Audible. Get a free trial. Go to audibletrial.com forward slash Go Adventure Mom. And you can listen to any book. I would highly recommend The Code of the Extraordinary Mind. This is a book that uh, my husband and I read recently, and it's absolutely revolutionized our life and is transforming it for the better. So check it out, audibletrial.com forward slash Go Adventure Mom. Welcome to the Go Adventure Mom podcast, where having kids only adds to the adventure. Get outdoors, see the world, live a full life. Go Adventure Mom, for families who refuse to be indoorsy people. Now, let's go adventure with Kathy Dalton. Hello, everyone. We hope that you're having a wonderful day. We've got some crazy weather here in Salt Lake City this morning when we sat down for breakfast. It was kind of like a little rainy, sleety outside. But by the time we put our breakfast bowls into the sink, we had about two inches of snow. So we have got some beautiful snow here in Salt Lake City in the middle of March. Today, our guest is Gabrielle Balkin, and she is the author of a book called 50 Cities as well as 50 States, and she's working on some really cool things. Today, she's going to share a little bit about her childhood as well as how she got into the publishing world, and this is definitely a kid-friendly episode. We've got um, some tips for kids at the end, so be sure to stay around to listen to those. Hello, Gabrielle. Welcome to the Go Adventure Mom podcast. Hi, Kathy. Thank you so much for having me. So before we get started, will you tell us where you are in the world right now? Right now, I'm at one of my favorite cafes in Brooklyn, New York. I come here when I'm hungry and I don't feel like cooking, and also when my kids have a day off from school, which they do today. So I've been kicked out of the house so I can get a little bit of work done. I love it. I love also picturing you in this this cafe looking for inspiration and writing, so that's really fun. It's funny you say that because when I was working on one of my books, The 50 Cities, I would ask people around me in the coffee shop if they had ever been to a city and what they like to do there and sort of kind of get ideas of what sorts of things to include from various cities. Because a lot of people come from all over the place to visit. And so I got some good tips from various people who just kind of wandered in for some avocado toast or something similar. Yeah, but it also gives this like real world perspective of, you know, lots and lots of different people that help to connect and to share what what their their experiences are with the 50 cities. So, we actually connected through the 50 cities book. Love this book. When the publishing company had reached out to me, I'd pictured it just kind of like a smaller sized book. And when it came in the mail, I was so excited because do you even know the dimensions? I mean, it's it's a much bigger. Is it like it's huge? I don't know, Fifteen oh. inches. I mean, and then you open it up, and it's even bigger. And then there's all these beautiful images for each of these cities with all these great facts, and it's it's just a really fun book. It's a lot bigger than I thought it was going to be. Even though I knew the dimensions from the publisher, you know, I was working on my laptop, and I would see the first drafts from the artist on my laptop, and just kind of pictured it much smaller. So when I saw the finished book, I was like, holy gosh, that is huge. Um, And it's sort of, you sort of, I love the idea of like sprawling out on the floor or a big dining room table and kind of letting more than one person look at it at the same time. 
And we've used it as like a research tool. Like if we're going to a new place, like we'll open it up and we'll find like some of the famous people that are from there, but also other things that those cities are known for. So it's it's a really fun way to kind of do that. World schooling is kind of what it reminds me of in, in oh, preparing yeah. for like a yeah. road trip and and love that you're that you're a part of that. And I even love more the the history behind working in a coffee shop and asking people around you <laughs> for their feedback. I think that's so fun. So tell us a little bit about how um, our listeners can connect with you. Oh, sure. Well, I have a website, which is www.gabriellebalkin.com. And on there, I have some information about my books and the publishers have created really fun videos that you can watch. There's one that goes along with the 50 states and there's one that goes along with the Book of Bones and they have great music to them. And so sometimes you can just dance a little and listen to the (laughs) music of the videos. And on that website, I also post some contests every once in a while. And if I'm visiting someplace, then I'll post wherever I'll be. And then I also have a Facebook page, which is Facebook slash Gabrielle.Balkan. And those are the two main places I talk about book-related stuff. And we'll be sure to include the links for your Twitter and your Instagram on our show notes page, which is goadventuremom.com forward slash podcast. And I'm pretty excited to follow you on Instagram because you shared that you you post mostly your kids' artwork and your new kitty and also your annoying cat. <laughs> <laughs> yes. my One of my seven-year-olds was bugging us forever to get a new kitten. And I swore we would never get another cat. And then my husband relented one day. And it's been amazing to watch her care for this new kitten. But I feel really guilty because we have an older cat and he is devastated stated that we got a new kitten she hassles him all the time and sneaks up on him and like grabs his tail and he thinks she's the worst thing in the world but it's pretty funny because every day nothing deters her she'll sneak up from him on the when he's like lying on our bed or when he's like sleeping under the couch or wherever he is she'll come find him I love it it's so fun we, we have a puppy he's about four months now and it's just interesting to watch them like grow and develop and learn about the world. <laughs> yeah. And I bet, I mean, you, your kids must, I had never seen my daughter in this role before. We had another cat, which she loved, but she feels she picked out this kitten and feels really like she, the kitten is her responsibility. And so she cares for it in a very different way. And it's like your kids must have their own responsibilities with your new puppy, right? Well, it's it's funny because we we also have a seven-year-old daughter and she really thinks the dog is like a baby and she will carry yes. it around the house. Like everywhere we're like, Hannah, put the dog down. Hannah, put the dog down. And she's like holding it like a baby. I'm like, honey, like, please just that let is, him be a dog. <laughs> yes, that is. We're constantly saying, you know, that's a living creature. You can love it. Don't love it that much. You know, there's other ways <laughs> to show that you care for the cat besides cuddling it so hard. Oh, I love that. That's so fun. So one question that we always love to ask our guests is a favorite place that they like to go and adventure. Do you have a favorite place that you guys like to go as a family? Well, it's hard to pick one favorite place, but especially if you have, if you enjoy exploring and doing 
things, which we all do in my family. My kids actually think that Northern Indiana is the best place on the planet because that's where one of their three sets of grandparents live. And they have a dog and they like to go visit the dog and boss around the dog. And it's like the smallest town in Indiana. And they think it's the bee's knees. But we uh, also love to visit Arizona where we have two other sets of grandparents. My dad and stepmom live in Tucson. My in-laws live in the Flagstaff. And it's pretty great to visit both parts of the state. They're so different from each other. And the scenery and the smells are really different than what we have here in Brooklyn. My favorite thing to do when I travel, which nobody else in my family enjoys, is visiting grocery stores. I love to see kind of what the neighborhood is interested in. And you can see different types of coffee or fruit based on what sort of people live in the area. And even in the U.S., it can be so different, the different types of grocery stories, and even more so if you're traveling outside of the country. And this is actually something that I love to do. So I'm glad to find somebody else (laughs) (laughs) that shares this like, and I've really like tried to analyze this too. Like, why do I like doing this? And and I love what you said about it really kind of giving this, this glimpse of what the community is like and and what they shop for. And I think it's, it's, you know, part of our, our weekly, you know, grocery shopping trip that sometimes we kind of take for granted that, you know, these are the things we buy and that we do. But for me, it's, such a part of my life and my day-to-day like I really love going to the grocery store same like in Seattle or in New York and just seeing what's available and what people buy and the names of things and how they're packaged exactly and like there's always like a local pickle like in Indiana there's a lot of like pickled beets and pickled pigs feet and pickled eggs and (laughs) I guess maybe like from an Amish community you can't really get that in Brooklyn, but then of course there's stuff in Brooklyn that you can't get anywhere else either. Yeah, the packaging can always be really beautiful. When my sister-in-law was in college, she was studying formerly communist countries and looked at the grocery stores in their countries. Oh, very interesting. Yeah. And like what was available, the number of items that were available. And then I once wrote a project on um, ugly fruit. I don't know if you've heard of the ugly fruit campaign that this one grocery store did in France. Oh my God, it's amazing. Because so, you know, probably I think only 40%, maybe it's 60% of the vegetables and fruit that are grown in farms make it to a grocery store. And it's not because they're, you know, rotten fruits and vegetables or they're not nutritious. It's just because they look a little different than what we're used to seeing. And so those fruits and vegetables either just get tossed or they get fed to livestock. But in France, this grocery store came up with a campaign to kind of celebrate the ugly fruits and vegetables. It's so cool. You can find it online. They took these really beautiful pictures of carrots that kind of look like noses or feet. And they gave them funny names, like sort of like villainous names. And then they offered them at a discount and people kind of got on board. So the idea was to be a more responsible eater where you're not just throwing away food because it doesn't look perfectly the way you expect it to. That's really interesting because we, I mean, we are so, you know, it's, I'm I'm thinking back to the time when I would go to Denmark and spend my summers with my grandparents and we'd walk up the street to the little farmer's stand and nothing was, you know, prettily, prettily packaged. And it was just, you know, it'd been dug up 
from the ground like two hours before right. and, and there was dirt on it and that's how it was. But like how far as a society when we live in a big city that we don't we don't experience that anymore. And we get kind of this skewed view of the perfect vegetable and the perfect fruit. And the strawberry has a little, you know, white on exactly. it. Or it. It doesn't look perfect. So I think that's really interesting. I I, I, I have to look that I know. up. Thanks for sharing I, that. It's, yeah. And I, I thought about, I was wondering if there was a way we could like start something with my kids at their school, but it's cool when, you know, kids can kind of be aware of it and take the side of the ugly fruit. <laughs> I love it. Sounds like maybe a story, right? <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> so tell, tell us a little bit more about yourself. Well, I've lived in New York for about almost 25 years now. But before this, I grew up in Georgia. My dad was in the service there. So I only lived there for a little bit. But then I spent the rest of my childhood in Indianapolis. And I grew up kind of in a really drafty old house right across from the state fairgrounds. And I loved that house so much. It was so big and had all these little quirks to it. And my parents now live in northern Indiana, but I sometimes still, you know, drive past the old house and it looks so much smaller than it did when I was a kid. (laughs) And I grew up an only child in an area where there weren't a ton of kids in my neighborhood. So I spent a lot of time by myself reading a ton of books. I like to play library by myself. And I'd also just kind of explore the neighborhood. And, you know, you, you think about how as a parent and sort of with more access to news, how differently you feel about safety now than I did when I was a kid. But probably a lot of the stuff I did when I was seven years old, I would never let my children do now. And maybe wasn't that safe, but it was, it was a lot of fun. (laughs) (laughs) But it sounds like that was a real foundation for kind of the, the path that you've gone on. I think so. And, you know, I, I just, I loved reading so much and, you know, that was how I learned about a lot of things was through the books that I read. I learned about different parts of the world and different ways of living. Pretty much everyone in my family is a teacher, my mom, my dad, my stepdad, my godmother. And I kind of thought I would grow up to be a teacher and got my teaching certificate when I was in college and taught summer school. But then I kind of chickened out a little bit about being responsible for that many students every day and having to be on time every day. But I really enjoy visiting classrooms now. I get to do that as an author, which I enjoy, and get to be pretty involved in my kids' own school. That's that's but, cool. That's great. Yeah. So then after you kind of chickened out about doing the classroom stuff, you apply for a job at Scholastic Books. Is that right? Yeah. I had always wanted to work there, and they had... I just, I don't even know how much I knew about the company as an adult, but I just knew them from the books that I would read as a kid and getting the little catalogs in school. And I was lucky enough to get a job there and it was just a perfect fit. It was a lot of people there who loved books, a lot of people who had spent some time in the classroom or had some connection to teachers and students. And my first job there was reading books sort of for the fourth to sixth grade reader and choosing which ones would go in the catalog. Oh, very cool. And it was just, it was a great job because you got to learn so much about the books and then you got to see which of your ideas worked really well and which ideas were total failures and, you know, gave you a lot of, gave me a lot of ideas for what types of books I might want to write someday. Cause I always thought that maybe oh, I would write, but wasn't yeah. sure. Yeah. Cause you know, you see, 
you see something that does really well that maybe you had no idea would do really well. Or you see two ideas that you're like, oh, what if like we did a book about this and also combined it with something like this? And so that was where one idea came from, a book of mine called The Book of Bones, which I created with a friend of mine who I worked with at Scholastic, who then went on to launch her own imprint at another publishing company. And uh, we were talking about ideas that had worked in book clubs that seemed to sell really well. And we knew that books about world records always sold really well. Books about animal facts always sold really well. And books about skeletons sold really well. But we had never seen a book that sort of combined all of those things together. And so she was like, let's do a book of world records of animal bones. And we thought it would be a lot easier than it was. And kind of the hard part of that book was narrowing down which animal bones to talk about. We knew that some would be easy, like guess which animal has the biggest bone. That's something you can like find out very easily. But then there were other, there's no like one list of animal bone facts anywhere. So you have to find out about all these different animals, see which one has an interesting bone to it. And then you have to make sure there's like a reference you can find quickly to show the artist. And, you know, so much of work is done online these days. The illustrator for this book actually lives in London. So I needed to be able to find things online to be able to send him as a reference. There was like one animal, which I really loved, but I couldn't find any pictures of its skeleton. So we had to like scrap that animal and switch it for something else. But yeah. So working at Scholastic in the book clubs gave me a lot of ideas for what types of books are interesting to students, readers, and uh, what can be used in the classroom. So I think that's, that's one of my goals with the nonfiction books I've been writing so far is how can teachers use them to support whatever they're doing in the classroom in some kind of way. I love that. I love that you had this experience where... I mean, you're really using the kids to do the research and, you know, that that age demographic of fourth and sixth graders and, and what works and what doesn't work. And that's a pretty unique position to be as, you know, someone that's wanting to to write stories and, and to tell, you know, publish books about facts like like you've done. But I love what you're saying about how the teachers can use that in the classroom. Yeah, you know... Because you go into some classrooms and a lot of teachers end up creating a lot of their own materials based on what they see that their students are interested in. And the student, the class, the type of school my kids go to is very student led where they have the, the teachers develop a curriculum based on things that they should be learning at that age. But then they use the questions from the kids to kind of guide where they're going with that. And that's another thing I do when I visit schools is hearing the questions from kids and sort of when I, when I think I have something interesting to talk about, but if I see their, them lose interest or start to fidget or their eyes glaze over, then I'm like, Oh, this isn't actually as interesting as I thought it was to someone <laughs> who's 10 years old. And you know, I think the best way to kind of get ideas for what to write about is to talk to kids and ask them questions and see what they ask you back in return. And it's it's never what you expect it to be. One book I'd love to write, I was talking with some fifth graders about maps, and we were talking about 
if there was such a thing as a bad map. And one student said, yeah, bad map would take you horrible places. So instead of being able to use a map <laughs> to take you someplace great, like the beach or to visit a family member, it would take you someplace awful. And I love that idea for a book. So that's on my list of things to write about. It's like the map of a horrible, the atlas of horrible places. <laughs> I think, yeah, it's, it's some cursed map and the kids yes. are on a, a mission to solve what, you know, to use this terrible map, but still have to overcome these obstacles. Exactly. I, I think yeah. that's really incredible. It's- yeah. Tell me a little bit more just about the children's publishing world, that's that's not an area I'm as familiar with. And I know it's its also really specialized, and it's mm. changed a lot since we were kids, right? Oh, absolutely. You know, it, it's its grown so much since we were kids. I mean, I've, I always, in my mind, I say the last few years, but really it's been like the last 30 years. You know, when I was in high school, there there weren't a lot of books that were published kind of for that newly independent young adult who was, you know, 16, 14. And so you would end up reading books that were published for adults, which I think is great, but they didn't always speak to the experiences that I had had. And now there really is like publishing that has readers of a certain age in mind. And so it's able to kind of tap into those impulses and interests. And I think that's fantastic. You know, starting with Students who are my kids' age, you know, six and seven, really starting to read, but they have exactly the right level book for their age, up to, you know, young adults who are encountering a different set of experiences. And even better than that, I think, is how much more more diverse the publishing industry has gotten. It still has a long way to go, but you're seeing books written by people you know, from every walk of life, every sort of background. And even if it's a book, like a fantasy book, having that written from someone who grew up like on an Indian reservation is going to read a lot differently than from someone who grew up in, you know, rural Indiana. And so I I love that more visibility is available to people from different walks of life and hopefully, you know, inspiring readers who match that demographic to kind of inspire them to write themselves or pursue some career that they might not have thought of if they hadn't seen it in a book with someone who looked like them. And and that they can identify. Absolutely. Exactly. Right. You know, there, there are books that I read that I loved where I didn't have a lot in common with the character, but you still enjoy the writing. But they were, you know, they were kind of like the same sort of person, more or less. And so now, you know, there's my my kids have they're they're reading books about all sorts of people from all over the world in different situations, and and they love it. You know, they they don't think there's anything unusual about it. It's just what is available to them easily, and it's great. And the book that you're currently working on is called The Book of Bones. Is that right? That one actually came out in September of 2017. And so right now I'm working on a follow-up to it. And we don't have a title for it yet. <laughs> That's the tricky thing. But it'll be a book about animals that fly. And 
you know, we, we loved working on the book of bones, but we wanted to do something that had the same kind of question and answer format because kids love to kind of show off their knowledge. So if you say, you know, guess who has the spikiest skull, they have a million ideas in their head. So we wanted to do a follow-up using that same format and look at animals that fly. And before I started researching this book, I had no idea that insects flew differently than birds and that even among birds they fly so much differently you know so something like a vulture has a different a very different way of flying than something like a hummingbird and the you know the trick is how to explain that so it is interesting and makes sense to what a 7-year-old student already knows about their life and animals in a short amount of space you know so you're not writing a dissertation on the topic but you want to be able to kind of give the reader something to think about so when they're looking out at the world, they can recognize things they know and have questions about things that they don't already know. So tell me more about like your research process because, I mean, with the Book of Bones especially, it sounds like, you know, a lot of that information wasn't really available. Are you looking like at scholarly articles? Are you looking at, I mean, do we even have encyclopedias anymore? (laughs) Right, I know. Well, I use a lot of different sources. The most valuable source to me is people who are experts in that area. And so for both the 50 states and the 50 cities, I look to local experts, people from an area to ask questions to. And for Book of Bones, I found someone through a friend of a friend who is an animal curator at a zoo. And so I would ask her questions And she was great. And then I found another person who is a professor of physiology in California. And then another guy in Alaska who just is a self-taught bone enthusiast. And they were great to talk to because I would write something. And then they, I I have such huge blind spots about what I knew, but they were able to read what I had written and kind of give me feedback and then I, you know, look on websites like Smithsonian always has interesting articles about animals, National Geographic. And then there is a Facebook group for everything you can imagine. And so I'm a yes, member of, I know, it's incredible. There's like a mushroom growing Facebook for people who want to grow their own mushrooms. And I've joined it. And uh, even though I'm not growing my own mushrooms, but then so I would get into these groups that were for a a vulture enthusiast Facebook group and these people love vultures and you just kind of look at them and ask questions and people love to talk about what they know or what they think is important. So that's kind of where I start sometimes is, you know, asking a question to someone who knows more than me. And then one thing will lead to another. And, you know, then there are big collections of books that I would check out from the library about hummingbirds or, about moose and just kind of like see where you go. That's the best thing about my job is sort of like you end up someplace different from where you thought you were going to go. Sometimes it's not a great thing. Like with the animals that fly book, I thought I had completed my page about butterflies, but then kind of had a change of heart and wanted to talk about a different type of butterfly, which was really beautiful. But then I wanted, you know, I always want to do more. So I chose this one butterfly, but the top of the butterfly and the bottom of the butterfly are very similar, but usually a butterfly's 
back is very different from its belly. And that's one way they can use to camouflage themselves and then also find a mate. And I thought that was a really important fact for kids to know. So I had gone down the path of one butterfly and then realized they, they didn't have the situation in their own anatomy. And so I wanted to change the butterfly in order to teach a certain lesson to the reader. I see. Okay. Okay. That's cool. But also like a challenge as a researcher. And, and if you're public, I mean, it's not like a, a blog where you can just, you know, write on and on and on and on and share endless information, but you have a number of printed pages and yes, you have to be really concise in the yes. information that you're sharing and have it be factual, but also, you know, interesting and, and you know, visual. So I, I can see that, you know, it's, it's an interesting challenge, especially if you kind of put your heart into something and you, you want to share something different that might not really be a fit for what you're trying to accomplish. So, Right, exactly. And, you know, I, I would probably revise everything forever, but there comes a point when you have to stop researching and start writing, and then when you have to stop revising and print the book. And I definitely look at some of my earlier books and think, oh, I wish I had done that differently. But the nice thing is then sometimes you get another chance to revise it in another book, kind of take ideas that you wish you had put in place in the first one. In the Book of Bones, I wish that we had included sort of a size reference for the animals. We'll show a picture of a very small shrew, but you can't really tell how big it is compared to something else. So we're going to add that kind of element to this new book about animals that fly. So you can kind of revisit things down the road in some situations. So I would love to know what your favorite children's book is. Oh, there's so many great children's books. It's sort of whatever one I'm reading most recently is my favorite. I know. It's not really fair to ask. (laughs) But one of my favorites, which I discovered through my kids, is called Dory Phasmagory. And it's by Abby Hanlon. And it's about a six-year-old girl who sees things. She has a very active imagination. And she drives her sister and brother crazy. And her parents are always exasperated with her. And she just has the time of her life. They're so, so funny. And they're beautifully illustrated. And I think there's like three or four in this series now, too. But I highly recommend them. And I just, when I'm reading them with my kids, I'll sometimes, if I'm reading it loud... I'll get excited about what's coming next and I'll stop reading because I just want to read it myself and my kids are elbowing me saying, stop, stop, read to us. Gabe is going to share one tip for kids who love to write when we return. I wanted to share something that I've done this past week that has added a lot of value to my life and wanted to share that with you guys. I was listening to the Mind Valley podcast. You can go search for Mind Valley. And subscribe to the podcast. It's a super awesome podcast. And one of the guests, his name is Kamal Rivakant, and it is all about how to love yourself. His book is called Love Yourself Like Your Life Depends On It. It's a, I think it's a short book, maybe 80 pages long. But he gives this fairly short presentation all about self-love and the things that he is doing and the intentions that he has set to do that and how important it is to love yourself and to give your all and thought that was something that you guys would enjoy check it out mind valley podcast and the episode is actually called how to love yourself gabe is going to share one tip for you kids 
that you can do if you like to write? For kids, for kids who love to write, I would say read a lot. That's the best way to get ideas, I think, is from reading things, whether you're reading a book or a comic book or a magazine or even an ad on the side of a bus is to kind of, I love to look at things and then ask a question. Like if I could ask the author of that book a question or the person who created that ad a question, what kind of question would I want to ask them? And then your story that you're writing could answer that question or it could be in response to something. So if you loved, you know, the book, Good Night Moon, what if the book was called Good Morning Sun? How would you write that book? So I think that's a great way to kind of think of new ideas is to write a response to another book that you like or a movie that you like or a song that you enjoy listening to. I love that. That's so great. Is there anything else that you would like to add? Thank you again for having me. And I just want to remind listeners to visit my website, gabriellebalkan.com. And I have contests up there periodically. And sometimes I ask readers to vote on things to include in one of my upcoming books. So I kind of make the readers do all the work for me. (laughs) But but that's fun. I think think my kids would be really excited to feel like they're part of that publishing process and that creative process as well. Thank you, Gabrielle. It's absolutely been a joy to get to know you and get some insight behind these books that we already have and that we already love, but to to see also what you're working on and to kind of get a little sneak peek for that. Thank you so much. I've really enjoyed talking to you too. Have a great day. Thank you for joining us today. We really appreciate the time that you spend listening to our podcast and supporting us. Just want to give you a big virtual hug. Really do appreciate all of the comments and reviews and kind words that you guys share, as well as sharing the podcast with your family and your friends. And just wanted to let you know how much you mean to us and that we really do appreciate you. Hope you have a wonderful day and a great week, and we'll talk to you soon. Thanks for listening to the Go Adventure Mom podcast. For more family adventure, visit GoAdventureMom.com. Plus, be sure to subscribe and share with your friends.